0: Anybody out there? Roll up, roll up, ladies and gentlemen of children of all ages, books, comics, sci-fi, TV and film, live from the Palace of Glittering Delights.
1: And here host Dadry Leyland.
0: Continuing my look through Amazing Spider-Man from the very beginning. For those that are new, previous episodes in this series are Number 38, Number 40, Number 42, Number 44, Number 46, Number 49, Number 52, Number 93, 94, 108, 113, 118, 125, 131 and 138. Covering Amazing Fantasy 15 through to Amazing Spider-Man issue 87. So that means this time we're starting at amazing Spider-Man 88, the arms of Dr. Octopus. See the rampaging return of Spidey's deadliest foe, runs the exciting cover copy. No matter what I do, screams Spider-Man, there's no way I can stop the living tentacles. On this exceptional cover by John Romita, Spider-Man has been slapped about by Doc Ock's tentacles, but Ock himself is nowhere to be seen. The level of detail in the crowd scenes is phenomenal, and it's yet another in the ever-increasing list of magnificent Ramita covers. The crew are small this time round. Stan Lee provided the script, with Ramita and Jim Mooney providing the art and inks. Sam Rosen lettered. Our story opens at New York's famous Museum of Natural Science, where a demonstration to the public has been given on Ox Arms, removed from him after his last encounter with Spider-Man. Now, I googled this and couldn't find a museum of natural science in New York, famous or not. There's a museum of natural history and a hall of science, but not a museum of natural science. It's possible it changed its name in between 1970 and today. It's equally possible it's a figment of Stan's imagination. The host helpfully informs us that although Ock is in a penitentiary in Chicago, the appendages are still considered armed and dangerous. (laughs) Quality gag. Behind him, a still image, presumably one of Peter Parker's photos, shows Doc Ock battling Spidey. The presenter lays it on thick that Ock has mental control of the arms and that's why he's been separated from them by a vast distance. Of course, no one knows just how far Ock's mental control extends. And so it is that from his jail cell, Ock has been honing his mental power for just such an occasion. The arms suddenly start moving, freaking out the lecturer and the assembled crowd. And as they flail and swing, the crowd panics and flees. The arms leap out of a window to freedom! I'm telling you guys, this is a fantastic opening. The exposition is handled well, as it feels like something that would be doled out at an exhibition like this. The art is stunning. Ramita populates the scene with many diverse faces and ethnicities. His people react like real people when the action starts. And the level of destruction feels just intimate enough to be terrifying. Of course, Spider-Man happens to be swinging by. Look. That's just how this works. If this was Daredevil's comic, Daredevil would be swinging by. It's comics, Jake. Spider-Man's encounter with the arms is brief but eventful. They still give Spider-Man a hard time, but he recognises the sluggishness, realising Ark must be quite far away. They smash a wall that Spider-Man has to web up to keep it from falling into the crowd, and in the interim, the arms escape. Romita again excels here with a beautiful mix of width-length panels, smaller, more intimate shots, and action galore. Spider-Man has no way of knowing where the arms have gone, although I'd hazard a guess that they're heading towards Ox Chicago-based penitentiary, so he decides to go home and study. This felt like a bit of shaky plotting, to be honest. We've seen Spider-Man spend all night try and locate someone or something that could do people damage but here where he could easily extrapolate the destination of the arms he just decides to go home and leave it to the police i feel that peter would at least search for the arms but stan and john clearly disagree peter falls asleep over his textbooks and the next day he sees a summons for him to see professor warren in his office This was a really neat throwback and a look at how things used to be. Before we were in constant touch with each other 24-7, we had to rely on notes and messages to get our information. Peter knows this is about his attendance being shoddy, the dilemma of being a part-time superhero, and he confides in Gwen that Warren has given his warning shot across Peter's bow. Gwen isn't bothered. All she sees is an opportunity to tutor Peter herself in the art of love. And science. The science of biology. You know where I'm going with this, right? It's a nice moment. A small drop of reality as Peter acknowledges that this superhero stuff takes its toll. We never saw other heroes missing days at work because the stilt man was free. For some reason, although it's taken Ox Arms all night to get to Chicago, no police presence has been rounded up to prevent Ox Breakout. I mean... It's a nice little scene because it's a good reminder of the difference between real life and comics and how Stan and co. tried to keep that line relatively thin. In real life, even something like Ock's arms would be too difficult for regular police to handle and the fact that Ock escapes in less than three panels is a good acknowledgement of that. Still, it would have been nice to see if the cops at least tried to stop him. You know, that is kind of the job. Elsewhere, J. Jonah Jameson is at O'Hare Airport in Chicago. Look, I've already pointed out this is comics. His son, John Jameson, has pulled a few strings to get Jonah on the same plane as General Su, who is on his way to a meeting with the UN. Su is a Chinese diplomat, and getting into this meeting is a major coup, one Jonah intends to exploit for an exclusive interview. This was a great scene between John and Jonah – John is all about duty, and how Sue being there could be the harbinger of peace, whereas Jonah is all about the exclusive story. This is more important than money, John tells his uber-capitalist father. Nothing is more important than making money, Jonah snaps back. I can only assume John Jameson takes after his mother. Also, Stan, again, including real-life politics in the book. Sue is presumably here to discuss Vietnam, still raging at the time this issue saw print. It's not a big part of the story, but it's yet another nice nod to the Marvel Universe not being that dissimilar to our own. In yet another massive coincidence, it's comics, Jake, Dr. Octopus hitches himself a ride on the 747 that is transporting General Sue and J. Jonah Jameson. To be fair to Stan, He acknowledges that this is a massive stretch by having Ock be completely unaware that Sue is on board and that this was just dumb luck. He sells it by having Ock be completely amazed at his own good fortune that General Sue is on the same plane that he has chosen to hijack. Ock, being a far better man than I, resists the temptation to burst into a karaoke version of a Johnny Cash song and instead disarms the MPs and threatens the lives of the cabin crew if his demands... $10 $10 million in cash to be waiting for him when the plane lands at Kennedy are not met. Again, another fantastic sequence. orc is arrogant and cocksure, just as we all would be in such a situation. We consider orc to be a lesser foe in terms of raw power, but here, against normal men and women, orc cleans the floor with them. Ramita's art is wonderful. The shot of Ock casually leaning back, his real arms above his head as he holds the crew hostage, is well realised. And the characterization is top-notch as well. The Chinese use this to take pot shots at their political rivals. And John, possessing a much cooler head than his father, advocates playing along so no one gets hurt. It's a tense, well-executed scene, all the more dramatic for being so very low-key. Back in New York, Peter drops by the Daily Bugle for a gig just as the news comes in about Ock. Robbie grabs Peter and they hightail it over to Kennedy Airport to await the plane's landing. They arrive and Captain Stacy is already there. Why? I don't know. I've got no idea. The guy's supposed to be retired. Still, George seems to be in on all the action. But exactly why Robbie and Peter are given preferential treatment is just glossed over. After all, the airport is filled with anti-Sue demonstrators, so I would assume nobody was getting past the police cordon. Presumably Robbie used his press credentials to get them in. The protesters also allow Stan and John to acknowledge the political unrest of the times, without mentioning Vietnam even once. Lee and Romito are clever guys. The tension here is really ratcheted up. There's the political powder keg of General Sue on US soil, the danger inherent in the hostage situation with Dr. Octopus, and Peter's dilemma of what to do about it all. Yes, it's a series of massive coincidences, but Ramitra and Lee make it all make sense in context. The creators also take their time in setting all this up. It's page 17 before Peter slips away, and page 18 of only a 19-page story that Spider-Man makes the scene. In many ways, this feels like one of the Nicholas Hammond TV episodes, with only a last-minute appearance by the hero after waiting for an hour to see him. Except this is well done. Saved for the last two pages, Spider-Man's attack is frenetic and handled quickly. He steals aboard the plane and uses the old web-up Ox glasses routine that has served him well in the past. The close quarters fight is ably represented in small confined panels by Remita, and Spidey's distraction allows the crew and passengers to escape. Ox, despite being blinded, makes his way to the cabin and manages to get the plane to taxi down the runway. Why doesn't he just take off his glasses? Is he like Thelma from Scooby-Doo? My glasses! My glasses! Spider-Man flees as the plane apparently blows up for no reason. It doesn't seem to crash. There's no indication that it's shot at. And it doesn't seem to hit anything. It just goes boom. This weak point aside, this is much more like it. After a few issues of let's be honest, mediocre stories, the return of Ramita on full art and presumably plot duties reaps dividends. Spider-Man's presence is minimal, but we don't miss him that much because the drama is so well done. It also wraps up this story whilst leaving the way open for more with a few dangling plot threads that will be picked up on next time. This is the best issue of Amazing Spider-Man in a while. As Jonah moans about Peter not getting any photos, Spider-Man wonders if Ock is really dead, which Stan spoils in the caption for the next issue, which states, To live again. Spoilers, sweetie. No effort at pretense is made with the next issue, number 89, with a cover that screams Doc Ock lives and depicts a three-panel cover all running down the page of Spider-Man and Ock meeting again, only for Ock to get the upper hand. Another stone-cold classic from John Romita. Speaking of classic, let's give a big hand to Gil Kane, who makes his debut as Penciler, although you wouldn't really know it, as Ramita's inking is really quite overpowering. Still, Kane's excellent sense of design and composition comes through, particularly in this really rather brilliant splash page. Spidey has really looked better, and the poses look just right as he web-swings his way through New York, pondering the events of last issue. Spidey isn't exactly broken up, that Ock is dead, and as he changes into Peter Parker's civvies, he's more bothered by the fact that he didn't get any photos of Ock's supposed demise. I'm wondering where Peter got his clothes from. He hasn't got his web pack, so unless he just left them in a piss-strewn alley, they appeared as if by magic. Peter stops by a newsstand to pick up today's paper, and is startled to read that Ock's body was not found in the wreckage. Even if the body was burned to a crispy critter, the arms should have been found. This makes Peter's spider-sense tingle. Could Ock still be alive? Peter is then accosted in the street by Randy Robertson, who's organising yet another student demonstration, this time against climate change. Don't these people have classes to go to? Peter blows him off, thinking his time would be better spent looking for Otto, but Randy thinks Peter is being a dick and tells him so. Apparently Gwen will be there, so that's no excuse, as will Ralph Nader. Who the fuck is Ralph Nader? Let's Google Ralph Nader. Oh, apparently Nader was a big deal in the environmental crusade department back in the 70s. Okay, fair enough. Peter still isn't going, though. Randy accuses him of being a self-centred jerk, and I can actually see his point. Peter could have been a little less brusque. Randy storms off and Peter chucks the paper in the bin and leaves grumbling to himself. The paper is picked up by a tentacled arm. So let me get this straight. In the last issue, Spidey's Peter Tingle could be used to pinpoint Ox's exact location inside a plane. But here, where he stood literally five feet in front of Otto Octavius, his spider sense does fuck all. In addition, Dr. Octopus has apparently been able to wander freely around New York without being seen and has been actively searching for Spider-Man, but has now decided he's happy for the world to believe him dead. He follows this up by leaping into the sky. I'm not entirely sure, but I don't think Otto is thinking this through. First, if you want to disappear, wearing a green and yellow bodysuit may not be the way to go. And this is before we mention the extra metallic appendages. Second, why is he hiding if he's looking for Spider-Man? There's quite obvious ways for Octo to make Spidey come to him. Third, he likes the idea of being dead for a while. But the very next thing he does is literally start tearing up a smokestack. What? The motivations in this comic are sadly lacking. Spider-Man is also searching for Doc Ock, a search that takes him past the bugle. We are treated to some fantastic design work from Kane, particularly the infamous Where, Where, Where panel on page 6, and the excellent Almost Splash page on page 8. Kane really manages to bring New York to the forefront in his stories. There's also a cameo from Jonah and Robbie who see Spider-Man swinging around, and Jonah asks Robbie if he's going to do anything about it. I wanted Robbie to turn to Jonah and say, what the fuck do you want me to do about it? But he showed admirable restraint. Spidey spots Ok tearing down a smokestack at the city's main power plant. Does New York really get all of its power from one plant? Spidey realises that Ok is so confident he's not waited until night to strike, something that the good doctor has never worried about before, but that if he destroys the plant, he'll black out the whole city. Where did this concern that Ox was going to strike at night come from if that's your concern why are you wasting time dicking about looking for him in the daytime secondly spidey suddenly thinks ox gonna wait until night to make his move and then destroy the power plant because it will plunge the city into darkness but spidey it's daytime Dr. Octopus isn't cutting the power of the sun. It will still be daytime. He won't suddenly be able to hide in the shadows because it's fucking daytime. Jesus, Peter, you really are as thick as paint sometimes. To Ox credit, he's not this dumb. He's destroying the plant to put the city at his mercy and attract the attention of Spider-Man. This it does, and Spider-Man attacks. The fight is exceptionally well drawn and packed with rubble, some great Spidey poses and some wonderful angles. There's even a few homages to Ditko like the top panel of page 11 which evokes memories of issue 12. Spidey has a few classic moves. He webs Ox's arms together around a chimney stack then pulls them forward so he smacks Ox's head into the bricks but the web across the specs trick fails to work this time. It's pretty much all-out war, and Ock really gives as good as he gets, not giving Spider-Man room to breathe and just relentlessly pummeling him with all four arms at once. Ock knocks over a ubiquitous water tower, and Spider-Man must once again pay homage to issue 33, as he balances the tower on his back to prevent it from hurting the people, and Stan drags this out for a good few pages. He doesn't bother to explain why Ock waits for Spider Man to succeed in this task before pressing his attack. It seems to me that while Spider Man has a big water tower on his back, that would have been the perfect time for Dr. Octopus to move in and kill the wall crawler. But wait, he does, before picking our hero up and throwing him 40 stories to the floors below. The art's the real hero here. The story is padded and pedestrian and makes very little sense in some places. In contrast to last issue, the tension is replaced by action. Fortunately, it's good action, with Kane pulling out all the stops and providing us with some exciting visuals. Let's not forget, this is an action comic, albeit not that one. And where the story is lacking, the pacing of the action is of paramount importance. Fortunately, Kane and Ramita are up to the task, and despite the problems, this is a breezy and enjoyable read. Gil Kane and John Romita provide the killer cover for issue 90, featuring the caption, Spider-Man, killer. Spidey walks up a wall, cradling a dead body in his arms. The face of the figure is obscured, but it is definitely a male. The assembled crowds below all offer the uninformed opinions. Spider-Man did it. It's his fault, cries one. He's a murderer, states another. The use of shading is particularly good on this cover. And Death Shall Come is by Lee, Kane, Romita and Sam Rosen. Spider-Man falls to his doom, realising that this is a lousy time to have run out of web fluid. Fortunately, ox tentacles haven't fully retracted and Spider-Man quickly grabs one and uses it as a vine to swing through a nearby window. I love this panel. Kane has the shards of glass smash in the reader's direction, and Spidey's figure is almost 3D as his legs push through the window. What follows is another example of Kane's masterful pacing and layouts. Spidey bounces off walls and ceilings, avoiding the dreaded tentacles, but they continue to stalk him. Spidey even panics a little as he hides in a claustrophobic cubbyhole, the arms wavering mere centimetres away from him. At the last minute, they pull back, and after planting a spider tracer on them, Spidey breathes a sigh of relief. A supremely tense and exciting moment, one of the best. It's all the better for not being like last issue, where it was really just a rehash of the infamous water falling in machinery pulling him down scene from Amazing Spider-Man 33. Hats off to Kane for his rendering of this sequence. Spidey changes back to his civvies. In a nice touch, the web pack we saw hidden on panel five of page five of last issue is returned to and Peter, aching and without web fluid, heads for home. He's groggy though, clammy. Once again, he passes out in the street but luckily, George Stacy is nearby and helps Peter back to his place. Peter awakens to a lovely vision, the face of the gorgeous Gwen Stacy. He's in her bed, steady, and George tends to his brow. George is amazed at Peter's recuperative powers, and Peter starts to think the savvy retiree may know more than he's letting on. Gwen wants to keep Peter in her bed, but George says it may be best to let him go home for a while. Spoil sport. Peter does head home, but not to rest. He's come up with a plan. He labours throughout the evening and into the night to make a special surprise for Dr Octopus. Then he stocks up with web fluid and leaves, noting Harry's snoring figure. He then goes to the roof, changes, and swings away. I did wonder why he didn't just leave directly from his apartment, but then I recalled the trouble he had last time getting back in without his civilian clothes. Spidey spends nearly an hour and a half crossing the city, trying to locate his spider tracer, and this is a wonderful montage of shots by Gil Kane. Spidey figures out too late, though, that it's a trap. Ock found the tracer and used it to lure Spider-Man in. Well played, Otto. Well played. Nice nod, this, to the plotter, scriptor, artist. Spider-Man's tracer was really obvious. Ock would have had to have been a moron to not spot it. Spidey then lets Ock beat the snot out of him. Well, I'm going to be charitable and go with let's. But as Ock does so, Spidey shoots small web bullets at each arm. Suddenly, Ock finds his arms not obeying him. The newly designed web fluid Peter made earlier is disrupting the signals between Ock's arms and his brain. They've actually started attacking the host. Well played, Peter. Well played. Unfortunately, Spidey has gone too far and the arms are wildly out of control. They flail and spin, knocking over a chimney. The debris falls to the crowd below the heavy bricks, hurtling directly at a small child. But George Stacy, in the area and trying to get the crowd to move back, dives in, shoving the child out of the way, but in doing so, finds the masonry pummeling him instead. Spidey, aghast, forgets about Ock and dives down to pull George free of the rubble. He tries to get into a nearby doctor, but it's too late. George tells Peter to put him down. You must look after Gwen, he tells him, revealing that he knows Peter's secret. He dies in Peter's arms. As Peter wonders forlornly, what will happen if Gwen ever learns that her father died because of Spider-Man? Another really good issue. Heavy on action, yeah, but again, really good action. And the fight scenes are tense and exciting. The ending is a gut punch because Stan, not the subtlest of writers, doesn't signpost it at all. It's a genuine shock when this happens and it manages to capture the random and sometimes tragic nature of life. All told, this was a much better three-parter than the schema issues. It really felt like it was going somewhere, that there was genuine danger and drama and it had a killer ending. It's beautifully paced and laid out as well. This Gil Kane guy has some chops. The ramifications of this issue are long. Spider-Man will be a person of interest in Georgie's death for a long time to come. Issue 91 has a rather busy cover by Mr. Ramita. Spider-Man walks down a wall, his body poised for battle, his fists clenched. In one hand, a thug. Other thugs litter the alleyway unconscious, but on the other side of the wall, Jonah, Robbie, Gwen, May, Harry, MJ and a new character shake their fists in anger. Weird cover this. May, Harry and MJ are nowhere to be seen in this issue. First Jameson, now Gwen, thinks Spidey, and now the whole city's against me. Ramita's body language is superb, even from behind. We can see May quaking in terror, Robbie counselling calm, and Jameson's face gleefully pointing out that he was right all along. There's a new character here as well, a balding man in a blue suit. He's more aggressive than any of them, for he is Sam Bullitt, and there'll be more about him later. Spider-Man has the spider signal shining on him, which is weird as the spider signal is in his belt and thus can't shine backwards. To smash The Spider is by Lee, Kane, Romita and Rosen. We open at the funeral of George Stacey. There are mourners aplenty, including, as you may expect, Peter, Gwen, Jonah and Robbie, but no Harry or MJ. The art is exceptional, from the moody splash page to the character work. The script is also on point. Jonah felt that George was a little too liberal to suit me, but he was a good man, and Gwen is simply thunderstruck. It's easy to see this as Stan slamming the brakes on his character development. There was nowhere else to go really with Peter and Gwen other than have him tell her the truth and now with Spider-Man accused of killing George this is something Peter can never do. At the funeral, Peter notes that even George's political enemies, the slightly overweight and balding Sam Bullitt, for example, have come to pay their respects. Jonah isn't privy to Bullitt's private thoughts, though, which already reveal Bullitt to be plotting how to use George's death to his own advantage. This was a misstep. Better, I think, to have played Bullitt as a neutral in these matters and reveal his true agenda later. Now we are in no doubt as to his real intent. As they all leave the sombre occasion, Jonah vows to come down on Spider-Man like never before. For the first time in a long time, Jonah's motivations feel real, not those of a comic book caricature. Think about it for a second. See this from the average person's point of view. They didn't see Dr. Octopus knock over the chimney stack. They saw Spider-Man swoop down amidst a hail of debris, pick up George's body and leave. He was alive when Spider-Man took him. When the body was recovered later, he was dead. In acting in haste, Spider-Man has done himself no favours. Secondly, Jonah's right. Spider-Man is a masked vigilante who takes the law into his own hands. Again, as Joe and Jane regular, we have no idea as to Spider-Man's true motives. He's always in trouble with the law. And as we've seen, has very little respect for the authority. In fact, Spider-Man is regularly anti-authoritarian, cocks his thumb at the establishment with regularity, and uses New York as his own personal adventure playground. As readers, we know Peter, we know the story. The average New Yorker doesn't. Gwen certainly doesn't. Fighting back tears, she vows to bring Spider-Man down in her own way. And her way is to volunteer for Sam Bullitt's campaign to be D.A., Bullet knew Stacy back in the day before he was kicked off the force for strong-arm tactics. I did wonder how a man who was kicked off the police force could then go into politics, but that leads me down the path of wondering how pathetic chances can convince an entire country that something quite noble is bad for them, and that makes me realise nothing Stan could come up with is odder than reality. Gwen visits Sam, who lays it on thick. Your father and I had different views on crime-fighting. Sam Bullitt never had time for Liberals or Bleeding Hearts or big talking long haired do-gooders. Law and order. That's my ticket. That's what Sam Bullitt stands for. We're at war. War with the left-wing anarchists who are trying to destroy this great nation of ours. See, we know Sam's a wrongun because he refers to himself in the third person. Gwen, good and decent person, falls for Bullet's words, hook, line, sinker, and copy of Angling Times. Me? I sure wish comics could go back to a simpler time when they weren't so political. Like, say, the early issues of Action Comics. With Gwen in his pocket, the liberals liberals won't know what to think. And Bullet calls the Bugle to get their endorsement. When Bullet promises to nail Spider-Man, Jonah heartily agrees. Even though Robbie urges caution. Jonah is fully on board. That's what this town needs, Robbie, he says. A no-nonsense DA who'll deliver the goods. You can't mean Bullet," retorts Robbie. That fledgling fascist is still living in the 1930s. Maybe things were better then, retorts Jonah. We had law and order. Yeah, and lynch mobs and bread lines and Uncle Toms, replies Robbie. Jonah calls time on the argument, but Robbie storms out. If I'm going to get my paycheck from a paper that supports Sam Bullet, he mutters as he leaves. Peter happens to be the scouting at work, but seeing the usually even-tempered Robbie Robertson's foul mood, he correctly assumes Jonah will be even worse and leaves. Peter heads home for a shower and decides he needs to take his mind off things with some wall-crawling or working. Curiously, spending his time with Gwen doesn't cross his mind. He turns on the telly to see Sam Bullitt riling up the city against Spider-Man, vowing to crush the wall-crawler. Again, Gil Kane excels at different kinds of panel layouts, including an up-the-nostril shot of Bullet and a great montage of Spider-Man being hounded and feared by the public. Thanks to the bugle and Bullet, Spider-Man even doubts himself. How does he know he's not a bad dude? After all, look at what he just did to George and Gwen. Despite not having his civvies, he's able to change back into Peter Parker's ID. Suddenly, his Peter Tingle... Um, tingles. Let's not call it that. His spider sense rings out to inform Peter he's being followed. It's Sam Bullitt. He wants to know if Peter, as someone who has taken more pictures of Spider-Man than anyone else, can offer any word on how to locate Spider-Man. Peter refuses that lack of trust in authority that Peter's always had kicking in again, and Bullitt tells Peter that if he isn't with him, he's against him. Peter overreacts, calling him a little Hitler, and Bullitt orders Peter beaten up by his renter thugs. They call Peter a commie radical and punch him about a few times, and Peter fakes his beating before they leave, and he performs a patented superhero quick change into Spider-Man. After taking out one thug with a stealth move the PS4 game would be proud of, he taunts the other, chasing him down and scurrying the shit out of him. Kane's panel progression is stunning here, as is another of his montage panels of a large Spider-Man chasing down multiple images of the same man spidey gives the man a warning and tells him to pass the message on to bullet as he leaves he notes that this little display accomplished nothing but it sure made him feel better he swings home but doesn't look before he leaps landing in his living room right in front of gwen and sam bullet we thought there was a connection between you and parker and now we have our proof yells a triumphant bullet okay so the issue isn't subtle But it doesn't have to be. It has a point to make, and it makes it. Can we really trust politicians who believe their way is right and people who don't agree are the enemy? Are hardline tactics the way, or do they cause more harm than good? Are pompous, arrogant men with curious hair really representing the best of us? It's also true to say that Stan is invigorated by this storyline. Sure, he could have kept churning out the same pabulum as before, mindless team-ups with characters like the Black Widow or sub-par villains like the Kangaroo and spinning his wheels with the strip until the readership tailed off from boredom. Or he can try and keep the strip relevant and progressive, even if he is avoiding the main issue of finally moving Gwen and Peter to the next level. I prefer the latter. The Ox storyline was powerful and shook the strip up with its daring conclusion, and this kicks off a more socially aware period in Stan's career. As such, it's a Marvel comic not afraid to make a point, yet still remains entertaining and exciting. Sure, the subtext is text, but Stan plays somewhat fur. Jonah's support of Bullet comes from a real place. Yes, Jonah's irrational hatred of Spider-Man is borderline stupid, but here, Jonah has a point. What? does Spider-Man mean to the denizens of New York. He doesn't look like a nice guy. He's creepy and aloof and cocks a snoot at anyone and everyone. No wonder the citizens of NY don't trust him. Curiously, I did wonder where Harry Osborn was. Remita takes aim at another excellent cover with issue 92 and puts it in the back of the net. Honestly, I don't know how he does it. Never just a stock image or movie poster style cover, Ramita keeps making dynamic imagery using the actual story elements as his base. If Kirby was king, Ramita is a regent. Here, Spider-Man swings high above New York, Gwen in his arms, being chased by Iceman. Iceman is very stupid as he uses his icicle power to cut through Spider-Man's webbing and thus cause Gwen to fall to her death. What an idiot. This rather contradicts his statement. This time you're facing a pro-webhead. Yeah, okay. What's also wonderful about this cover is the backgrounds. On the ground, people stop and stir, gazing out of nearby buildings, agape at the happenings. Despite some of the problems with the samey stories of the era, the covers always made sure the reader bought the book. When Iceman Attacks picks up directly from the last issue, but with Art Simek providing the letters. Interesting note about the dress Gwen is wearing. On the cover, the dress has a floral pattern and is coloured distinctively. In the issue, despite it being the same dress, the colourist took one look at the amount of effort it would take to colour that in every panel and decided, screw that, and coloured Gwen's dress all one colour. Spidey thinks quickly, if not rationally, and grabs Gwen. He leaps out of the window with a cry, I wasn't after Parker, lady. I was following you. Bullet is ecstatic. He's handing me the election. Gwen fights, pummeling Spider-Man who protests his innocence in the killing of her father. Perhaps kidnapping her wasn't the best way to go about proving that, Spider. Gwen's having none of it. When Sam Bullitt is elected DA, he'll finish you. Spider-Man lights upon a rooftop to try and explain, but down below, Bobby Drake of the X-Men is on a date, presumably with a beard. He's Iceman, see, and the X-Men have been kaput for some time, see, so he's itching for some action and not the kind a young woman can provide. He ditches his lady friend and ices up. He decides to take Spidey out himself. I have to confess, my heart sank a little here. Stan has gone to the pointless guest star well a lot recently, with appearances by the Black Widow and the Human Torch, and the results, well, they haven't been great. The Widow especially was merely a plug for her upcoming solo strip, and with the X-Men no longer a going concern, I felt this was going to be the same. Why trash a great storyline like this with a stupid and irrelevant guest star team-up? Spider-Man takes Gwen to a nearby rooftop where he hopes to lay some truth on her. But she's a feisty one, is Gwen, refusing to listen and giving Spider-Man a hard time. Iceman locates them and refers to Gwen as a helpless female twice in as many pages. Maybe he's a Ferengi. Iceman attacks and we get to the pointless misunderstanding part of any team-up of this vintage. Thankfully the fight is interrupted by the police, called by Bullet, so that he can take credit for Spider-Man's arrest. Spidey swings off, weirdly without tapping his web shooters, and Iceman takes Gwen to safety. Bullet hates this. He can't have Iceman cramping his style, and he basically makes it seem like Iceman was acting on his behalf. Iceman is too stupid to retort, and simply follows Bullet's lead kowtowing to his words. Over the next few days, Bullet rides the crest of the wave of populism, making it look like his election to the town's new DA is merely a formality. However, there's a spanner in the works, a fly in the ointment and other such things. Jonah lets Bullet know that the bugle will be withdrawing its support of him. Bullet is angered by this, but Jonah says he's learned some things about the man that's made him reconsider his paper's position. For one... Peter told Jonah and Robbie about Bullet's rough-shod treatment of him the other day. And for two, Robbie has been digging into Bullet's financials and backers. And what he's learned is that Bullet is backed by some very shady people and organizations. Bullet drops all pretense, threatening Robbie and calling him a racial slur. But all that gets him is an angry J. Jonah Jameson, who flat out calls Bullet a bigot. This is both remarkably life-affirming and incredibly naive from the vantage point of 2020. It's great to see the redemption of J. Jonah Jameson continue as Stan and his collaborators take Jonah away from the blustering conservative caricature and into a more rounded and more fleshed-out character. Jonah's a lot of things, but he's no racist, and when presented with evidence that he's backed the wrong horse, he's more than willing to change his bet, even if he can't actually admit he was wrong. On the other, it's doubtful that it's even put a strain on a Teflon character like Bullet nowadays. He'd decry it as fake news, claim the Bugle was an enemy of the people, and couch his words to Robbie in phrases like, go back to where you came from, all the while watching his approval ratings go up. Peter has hung around after telling Jonah and Robbie about the incident and sees a couple of Bullet's strong armors take Robbie away. Peter changes clothes and follows a Spider-Man. Unfortunately, Iceman arrives and prevents Spidey from his pursuit, and we're back into another pointless misunderstanding portion of the story. This time, though, Spider Man does try to reason with the human icicle, but he's a stubborn mule, by and large, and thus tries to capture Spider Man again. Spidey, tired of Ice Pop's shit, quickly wipes the floor with him and leaves him embarrassed and webbed up. To be honest, this is how it should end. Iceman's no match for Spider-Man on a bad day. On a good day, where spider has something to lose, the snow cone melts away like a Magnum ice cream in summer. The traffic means Spider-Man doesn't lose Robbie, and as he watches, they take him to an abandoned warehouse. Spider-Man arrives just as Bullet leaves, but just in time to overhear him ordering his men to snuff Robbie out. After all, Robbie can't use the dossier if he's dead. And this is where this quite taut political thriller fell over. Jonah has the dossier, not Robbie. Yes, Robbie compiled it. Yes, Robbie did all the research and digging. And yes, it's Robbie that's put the screws on Bullet. But he then gave it to Jonah for publication. Jonah had it in his hands on page nine. Killing Robbie doesn't kill the story. This is remarkably stupid of Bullet. And, by extension, Stan. Iceman, meanwhile, has followed Spidey and overheard the threats to Robbie's life, and the two of them take out the goons and save him. They then head over to the fundraiser Bullet is running tonight, where Spider Man, Iceman, and Robbie walk in. Robbie is more than happy to testify, and thus Sam Bullet's illustrious political career comes to an inglorious end. Other than the pat ending, this was a really good five issue run. Sure, we can argue as to why the police didn't also arrest Spider-Man when they took Bullet away. And more could have been made of Bullet's police contacts. After all, he may be being arrested by a former colleague. But overall, this was a satisfying story. It suffers from not being fleshed out enough, though. Two issues wasn't enough for this storyline. And maybe it could have bubbled along for a few more issues. Jonah's conversion takes place entirely off-panel. Maybe Robbie could have got under Bullet's skin a little bit more before Bullet made the decision to kill him. An issue in between this one of Robbie's investigations, perhaps involving Peter after his being beaten up by Bullet, could have been an interesting story, as we could have seen Robbie and Peter working together and discussing their thoughts on George Stacy's death, given how close they both were to the man. Likewise, I was wrong about the Iceman team-up aspect of the strip. Iceman's barely there. This story could easily be told without him, so he doesn't gum up the works, but nor is he here to plug something. He's here because the Marvel Universe was a shared universe, and occasionally these people run into each other. Stan's overtly political script, however, showed a real fire in his belly after the wheels spinning of the past year or so. The Ock three-parter, followed by this two-part story, shows Stan still has some juice in the tank, and all he needed was a story to tell that wasn't a rote team-up or lame bad guy. Gil Kane's art has been a shot in the arm for the series. Whilst John Buscema and Jim Mooney are no slouches, Kane's anatomy and panel layouts are far quirkier and therefore far more suited to Spider-Man. Finally tonight, issue 93, The Lady and the Prowler is another John Romita cover and sees the Prowler kicking Spider-Man down an elevator shaft. Rough. Sadly, Gil Kane is gone, leaving this to be a Stan Lee, John Romita presentation. Interestingly, there's no Inca. This is just 100% pure rum eater. Gwen stands on the splash page, saddened and tearful due to recent events. Her father is dead, her boyfriend burly around, and she's adrift, directionless. Apparently, none of her other friends have been around either, as Harry and MJ have been A Wall since George's death. The phone rings, and it's a transatlantic call from her father's brother, Arthur, who lives with his wife in London. Apparently, not Only has Gwen completely forgotten about her uncle. Nobody has told poor Arthur about his brother's death. He's just heard about it, so no invite to the funeral, no courtesy call, nothing. Despite this, he still thinks Gwen should come and live with him for a while. Some stability might be good for her. Gwen suddenly thinks how wonderful it would be to see them again, despite barely remembering their existence two panels earlier. Gwen's doorbell rings. It's Peter, finally. He seems shocked that Gwen has been crying. Gwen tells Peter about the prospect of moving to London a mere thought a moment ago, a possibility, but a few seconds later. Peter decides this is the appropriate time to propose. Not at a birthday party when they were both happy, not when they were sat on the bench in Central Park, no, not literally any other more appropriate time than this, no. He decides to propose when she's distraught and upset. However, the amnesia juice is flowing, and when Gwen mentions that she loves Peter as much as she hates Spider-Man, Peter suddenly remembers that he is Spider-Man. Are these people like Guy Pearce's character in Memento? How do they even remember how to tie their shoelaces in a morning? Peter panics, rescinds his thought of marriage, and blunders his way through the rest of the conversation, a conversation that results in Gwen chucking him out. Way to go, Pete. What a colossal clusterfuck this scene is. Peter is a massive dickhead, and Gwen isn't much better, but we can cut her some slack due to the emotional stress she's under. Stan has frequently had Peter be unlikable, sometimes even behaving like a buffoon, but he's really been as much of a moron as he is here. He's selfish, narcissistic, and uncurring. This isn't about you, Peter. Pete wanders the streets and rails to the skies at the unfurness of it all. And how he hates Spider-Man. So to recover, he becomes (sighs) Spider-Man. He craves action, not Gwen. He doesn't go and try and apologise to try and make it right. Hell, to just be with her. No, he swings off and lets her deal with all this on her own. What a fucking moron. Elsewhere, Hobie Brown and his girlfriend Mindy are looking for an apartment. But Hobie is troubled. A few issues ago, Spider-Man asked him for a favour, and Hobie, in his alter ego of the Prowler, obliged. But now, with Spider-Man accused of murdering a man, Hobie wonders did the wall crawler trick him into being an unknowing accomplice? Especially as Hobie recognises the man that is now dead as being at the party where he pretended to be Spider-Man. Hobie doesn't know that he was merely covering for Peter. This is quite a logical jump for him to make. Hobie needs to know, and after leaving Mindy, he dons his prowler gear and goes looking for Spider-Man, hopefully to bring him to justice. So Hobie remembers George Stacy, but he doesn't remember that the guy who gave him the Spider-Man costume was wearing the same clothes as that guy stood right there, right next to him. There. It's a distinctive yellow jacket, Hobie. You can't miss it. You know, the guy that you thought you'd killed a few issues before. You remember him, right? Now, if you will recall, lovely listener, when Peter went to Hobie to ask him to be Spider-Man, to remove suspicion of him being Spider-Man, he was wearing the same clothes he was wearing at the party. Well, Hobie pretended to be Spider-Man. Hobie knows Peter's face from the earlier encounter where, you know, he thought he killed him. He may not know or remember his name, but he knows what he looks like. Surely Hobie could have put all that together. Now, I'm not the only one to think this. The letters page has been full of readers saying the same thing. And Stan just backs them off, saying Hobie will return and this will be addressed. It isn't addressed. Stan completely ignores it. (sighs) After much soul-searching, Peter decides to tell Gwen the truth. And he swings to Gwen's house as Spider-Man. He lands on the wall and is about to knock on the window. Wait, wait, wait a minute! Pack the truck up. Peter decides to tell Gwen the truth, but he decides to do it as Spider Man, and by knocking on the window—an issue after he kidnapped her through a window. What the hell is he thinking? This is quite possibly the stupidest thing he has ever done. Luckily, before Peter can carry on with his boneheaded plan, the Prowler shows up and thinks after killing George, Spidey has returned to finish the job. They fight and bite and bite and bite and fight and fight, 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 fight bite, 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 the Prowler and Spidey show. The rest of the issue is back to wheel spinning with a pointless fight of misunderstanding. There's even a really dumb bit where apparently Spidey can't save a falling Hobie with his webbing because the script says that it can't. Hobie is injured, so Spider-Man strips him and burns all his equipment. Shit, Spidey, that stuff's expensive and crucially, not yours to burn. Sure, take Hobie's clothes, but leave them so he can get them back later, you selfish fucker. Spidey takes Hobie to the hospital, calls Mindy, and then rushes to Gwen after seeing how in love Mindy and Hobie are. He arrives at Gwen's apartment, which is weird, as she lived in a house with her dad in every other appearance, but whatever, where he finds someone else unpacking their clothes. Again, let's back that truck up. Gwen suddenly lives in an apartment that overnight she sold, packed up all her clothes, and left. You know, I'm pretty sure it'd take a lot longer than that. Spidey learns that Gwen is up and left for London, leaving behind her friends, her college career and Peter without so much as a rat. Right, I'm off. See ya. He arrives at JFK to see the plane leaving. Stan goes for pathos, but this issue is just too stupid to pull it off. Nobody acts in a way that is even remotely relatable or identifiable. Every single problem Gwen and Peter have here could be solved if they just went down to the coffee bean, had a cup of coffee and had a chat. But Stan, terrified of taking that next step and being truly daring with the strip, takes the easy way out. And as such, this issue is contrived and uninvolving. Peter is an idiot. Gwen, too irrational. And the basic plot, terribly dull. This issue should have been about Peter and Gwen and Mindy and Hobie. Hobie should have confronted Peter with the issue of George's death and told him he'd figured out who he is, but that he doesn't know his name. Then, having had a serious heart-to-heart, both men could have teamed up to stop some nondescript bank robbers and then returned to their lovers reinvigorated and committed. Hobie and Mindy should have set a marriage date, and Peter should have told Gwen. Then she could have gone to London to get away and think, leaving Peter and Gwen distraught but at least expressing true emotions. That. Would have been in character. Peter owning what he's done and telling Gwen the truth. Gwen, trying to forgive but unsure as to the future, leaves anyway to clear her head. Sadly, what we got was this mess. Stan clearly doesn't have his eye on the prize here as the script is all over the place. Gwen forgets that she has an uncle. Peter forgets that he's Spider-Man, and Gwen has a problem with Spider-Man. Gwen goes from living in a house to living in an apartment. MJ and Harry haven't been seen supporting Gwen, and Peter is far too whiny, even by his standards. There's far too many things that just haven't been thought through. It's like Stan is deliberately avoiding the direction the story clearly wants to go in. Sadly, he'll continue to do this, resulting in a later writer thinking Gwen too dull and killing her off. Had Stan been brave, been really at the vanguard of comic book innovation, he'd have had Peter confide in Gwen and maybe the direction of the strip would have been totally different. Ah, well. Everything will hopefully turn out okay. Until issue 120 anyway. Anyway.
1: Greetings, podcast listener. My name is Charlie Niemeyer, and I host a show called Charlie's Geek Cast, all about me and what I like. But mostly about what I like. 2020 marks a pretty special year for me. For one thing, I'll be turning 40 this year. But this year also marks 10 years since I started podcasting by talking about Superman's adventures in the Bronze Age. Coincidentally, this year also marks 50 years since Superman entered the Bronze Age. To celebrate all of this, this year i'll be doing a series of episodes called geeking on superman in the bronze age where i'll be looking at some great bronze age superman adventures that i didn't get around to the first time around it's a lot of around so check out charlie's Geekcast, part of the two true freaks internet radio network at two true freaks.com also you can find the show at charlies geekcast.com or wherever you get your podcast. Alright, let's look at some emails, should
0: we? Baby, you can drive my car is from Jack Boone. Hello, Jack. Actually, the Beatles would have to switch the steering over for me and I'd have to switch it over for you, which seems like a lot of trouble. Yes, it does seem like far too much effort, doesn't it? Not a lot to debate on the best vehicles. You've got the best. I'll just rearrange the also rounds. Have you seen the Filmation live-action Saturday morning show ARC 2? The Ark 2 carried four young scientists, one of them a talking chimpanzee, around to isolated survivors of the collapse of civilization. A roaming base lab camper that, like the night industry's support truck, is surprisingly roomy inside. Now that I mention Kit, I remember Ark 2 carried its own small ATV and a jetpack, and I don't remember what all stored out of sight, out of mind, until needed for its particular story. I think the exterior shell and the walls of the interior set were reworked to be the seeker spacecraft for the later series Space Academy, suggesting society did recover in the two steps forward, one step back, Brodenbury would say, in trying to sell his Genesis 2 as not completely pessimistic. I have never seen either of those shows, Arc 2 or Space Academy. Very possible they never got over here. Never seen them. I think I've heard of Arc 2, but I've never seen it. The other great car that comes to mind is the Beverly Hillbillies' old truck, with Granny's rocking chair high in the back. (sighs) These two are more fascinating for a passenger. Well, I was one of four kids, each getting our driver's licence the year after the other, even as Tiny Tot playing in the family car, we had to find our own place in the adventure whilst waiting for our turn at the wheel. I like Buck Rogers' Starfighter better than Apollo's, but you probably have the majority with you, and authority too, as Buck's design was rejected for the Galactica in favour of the other. The pods on the side of Bookship that come points in front were sufficiently fang-like to inspire, in the grand tradition of the X-Wing, Y-Wing and Bowtie fighters, the name Viper, which was fortunately kept to be applied with less obviousness to the new design. You showed great restraint in only listing two Jerry Anderson vehicles, although so I'll only add one, the Shadow Lunar Mobile. This orange, fish-faced spacecraft is carried high into the atmosphere in a special aircraft, in what can be traced back to the mid-air launches of X-planes, but what today looks like a sign pointing directly at Virgin Galactic. It can then do work in orbit or land on the moon base, where it disconcertingly sits on the rim of its engine bell. I tell myself that the gantry around it is supporting it just above the surface and running refuelling lines in electric umbilicals while I'm telling myself things. The return to Earth involves rendezvousing and reattaching to the carrier aircraft, the high visibility orange being practical as well as good for a toy. Presumably the module is a lifting body shape to give a wider envelope for this manoeuvre or, if unsuccessful, to get the crew to a safe place to ditch it. Or the Thunderbirds can roll their remote-controlled elevator cars out on a runway to catch it in lieu of landing gear. It would have been very, very easy to do an entire show on Jerry on Anderson vehicles, which is probably why I didn't go that route, but it, yeah, I do like the Shadow Lunar module. It also looks like 1984 sounded like the end of the golden age of TV vehicles, with Riptide never using the screaming Mimi helicopter to best advantage, and Sonny Crockett living on a boat with his pet alligator rapidly fading into the background on Miami Vice. Yeah, but he did have a Ferrari, didn't he? Didn't they explain in an episode of Miami Vice that he only had all that stuff because he was largely Donny Brascoing it undercover as a, a drug lord? And so he had to drive Ferraris, and he had to have posh places to live. It
1: sounds like a good gig,
0: if you can get it. Thanks, Jack. Much appreciated. Yeah, yeah, the Shadow. Yeah, I'd go with the Shadow Mobile. Hello, Andy. Hello, it's Zach Empire. Again, is your name really? Zack Empire, because that's a cool name. I just listened to the latest episode and I thought I would share some thoughts on Spider-Man. First, let me say, as a huge Spider-Man fan, I love it when you do a show about him. Every time you release a new episode about him, it gets moved to the top of my listen-to list. Well, there you go. Zack, here's another one for you. That era that you're covering is the era I love the best. To respond to a few things you said, I really don't think you need to give the spider Maps episodes their own feed. Yes, it would be helpful for going back and listening through the episodes, but when you do a new one and it shows up, it's a fun surprise. You just never know what will be covered at the palace, so to go from three episodes covering classic TV shows to an episode about our favourite wall crawler is just one of life's little treats. As far as what you should cover and shouldn't, know that I plan on listening no matter what you decide. For me, ideally, you would just keep doing several issues at a time in numerical order, but if you decided to skip around a bit, I wouldn't blame you. Even though I love Spidey, there are certain stories I find dreadful and wouldn't want to spend time reading and talking about. I also only just read most of them McFarlane because of their release in the Epic format, and would love to hear you talk about those. However, if you go in release order, it would take so long to get though, perhaps it's best if you do skip around. Hmm. Guess I didn't help at all, really no, not really, but the thoughts are isn't they One of the things I do like about that, Zach, thank you, is that you never know what you're going to get with this. And I often wonder if that puts people off. Because you can say what you want about an index show, but you know what you're going to get every week. And there's something comfort foody about that. Whereas with this, yeah, I don't know what I'm covering next week. Well, I do know what I'm covering next time, obviously, but you don't. It could be anything. And for me, that's part of the fun of doing it that I can do anything I want. I've got no one breathing down my neck saying you have to do this and you have to do that and you have to do the other. And there's no consecutive nature to it where I know what I'm doing for the next six weeks. I have no idea what the next after this show will be. I know what the next one is because I'm balls deep in doing it. But after that, Sky's the limit. So, whilst that is something that keeps me interested and entertained, I do frequently wonder if we often lose if I often lose listeners because they would rather have the the formal structure of like an index show or whatever. I, I don't know. I don't know, it doesn't seem to have affected the listenership, the people who listen to this seem to enjoy it no matter what I cover, for which I'm I'm very grateful, but at the same time I do wonder if that does affect the listenership, that they don't know what you're going to get next week, so there's there's uh, an uncertainty to it, whereas I think that reflects life, you know, you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, do you? Here's to hoping you keep making Spider-Man themed episodes no matter how you choose to do it, and as far as the bendy Superman stuff, just remember, everything's going to be okay, <laughs> Very good. Yeah, I like that. Uh, Anyway, that was brilliant. Two emails from Jack and Zach. I've got a few more coming up, but again, it's that Tuesday night where I have to go and get the misses. So I'll sign off there and cover the next emails next time. What is going to be next time? I recently purchased my first uh, Doctor Who Blu-ray set, which was the season 26 box set. uh, The final season. Of the classic era. And um, people will know it's a Sylvester McCoy season. And people, long-time listeners will know. I don't really get on with Sylvester McCoy. So, we'll see how that goes, should we? That's next time. Okay. If you want to email in, like, Zach and Jack and Luke and Charlie and Jean, who've all emailed in, but I haven't got to him yet. But I will. You know. Life's an adventure. I'll get there. Um, I will... Give you the email address, comics at When we get our new website up and running, there'll be a new email address, but I'll tell you that at the time. And everything's gonna be fine. It's all gonna be great. See y'all next time. Goodbye. <laughs>